The first scripture reading is from Mark 10, 42 through 45. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. James two fourteen through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 1 John three sixteen through 18 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome to Liberty Fairmount. Glad to be worshiping with you today, even clumsily. Lord said, do things orderly, but I don't know about clumsily. I think clumsily is allowed. There's grace for being clumsy. Hey, we're in the middle of a uh, series on relationships, a mess worth making. And um, today, we're going to be talking about something that's near and dear to uh, our hearts, which is carrying one another's burdens. And uh, what we've done in the fall, we decided that it's going to be helpful for us to go along together with a passage that we study on Sundays and then study that in our home meetings, which is the way we basically know and care for one another. We stay connected in one another's lives. Um, It's easy in city life and urban life to get disconnected and to be isolated and be alone. It's easy to sort of uh, stay back on the periphery. And so this is one of the ways we really try to provide for one another so that we don't do that so that we are living the kind of community that Jesus would have us live. Um, One of the things that I thought about as I thought about how to introduce these passages, and I'll explain in a few moments why I chose three passages. You think, oh, he's getting adventurous in preaching. He's preaching on three passages today. Uh, There's a reason, and I'll explain it. It's actually kind of a fun reason, so I hope to look at that with you. But leadership, when I think about leadership... You think about what does it mean to be a good leader, right? Think about our community. What does it mean to excel in leadership in our community? Think about your work. What does it mean to excel in leadership at your work? Or in your school? Or in your family? Or among your friends? What does it mean to excel in leadership? Now, there was a, um, I remember, first of all, seminary 
doesn't have any leadership classes. So you have to sort of take this as you go from other places. I remember I had a friend at Columbia Business School doing his MBA program, and he was friends with a professor. And he said, hey, why don't you come in and sit on a class? Because he was feeding me things to read, and uh, that was a great way to learn. So I said, sure, I'd love to see what class is like for you in your MBA program. So I went, and I sat in, and the, very, the whole class was about how to go into a new place of employment and immediately diagram the flow of power in all of the office, in all of the dynamics of the way that the offices work. So power, to get something done, power flows from here to here, and you understand how that flows, you understand how to make use of it. And it was an extraordinary class. I mean, I had never seen anything like that, even remotely close to that, in seminary, um, because there are real skills involved with that. Did you know that MBAs are, are trained to go into places of employment and understand exactly how things work, even map it out, know who to talk to to get things done, know how to mani- manipulate power even to get it done? to make it flow so that you accomplish your goals. So it was an interesting thing, and I had a great discussion with him. But, again, seminary is not like this. And I was thinking back to the 2008 banking crisis and the economy and the, and the crash, right? And there were lots of MBAs involved with that. And a lot of them dove out windows and landed dead on their cars, you know, 40 stories below, because something was wrong in their leadership that their MBA training couldn't give them. Something was wrong. Now, I have a friend named Max, and he wrote a, a book called The MBA Oath. And Max, is, uh, Max was at Harvard and uh, did his MBA training there. And it was very interesting because I'll read you a little bit of their oath. He says, Our mission is to facilitate a widespread movement of MBAs who aim to lead in interests of the greater good and who have committed to living out the principles articulated in the oath. The oath is a voluntary pledge for graduating MBAs and current MBAs to create value responsibly and ethically. Yet a lot of MBA graduates absolutely flat out refused to take that oath. Flat out refused. What's the problem? Clearly something missing, but what? Now what's, what's interesting here is that this flow of passages, Jesus, James, and John teach us what's missing. Jesus is here. We'll, we're going to take a look at it. Jesus uh, corrects James and John about their leadership. He corrects them in the first passage. And in the next two passages, we see James and John writing later about what they understand leadership to be in reflection of how Jesus had changed them in their relationship. So that's how they flow together. We're going to look at servant leadership today. We're going to look at three things, the nature of servant leadership. We're going to look at the follow-through of servant leadership, and we're going to look at the balance of servant leadership. We're going to look at the nature of servant leadership, the follow-through of servant leadership, and the balance of servant leadership. Okay, the nature of servant leadership. You see in 42, the very first thing that's interesting about the way that we should be positioned towards one another as we endeavor to be servant leaders is that we're called by Jesus to come to him when there's conflict. Right? Look at what it says in the passage. I lost my bulletin. Glenn McDowell took my bulletin. I'll give it back to you. Um... 
yeah, so Jesus called them, called them to him, right? And one of the things that we see there is that Jesus, in conflict, are indignant with other brothers and sisters when we're indignant with one another. That's what I wanted to come to the passage for. Uh, actually, it's not in the passage, it's before it, so you can have your bulletin back. How about that, Glenn? Right before it, what has happened? What's happened? What's happened to bring them to this point? Right before this, James and John say to Jesus, look, when you come into your kingdom, we know you're coming into your kingdom. We know you're coming into a position of rule. We know you're coming into a position of authority and power. We know that. And when you do, we want you to grant us whatever we wish. He says, well, what are you asking of me? And they said, we want you to grant us to sit at your right and your left hand. Right? So what happens there is that they're viewing a position of rule and a position of authority as something that is leveraged for them. And it says that the other disciples hearing this became indignant with them. And that's exactly where we pick up in our passage where Jesus calls them to himself. So the very first thing we've got to see in servant leadership is that when there's conflict, and there will be conflict in leadership, one of the things that's true about leadership is that you, have a, you are a target. You are a target for everything going wrong, whether it's, whether it's your fault or not. That's just part of the burden of leadership. So one of the things that leaders need to do in the community is go to Jesus together. The first step, right? He calls them to himself. We can go to him. In relationship to a position of rule and an exercise of authority over others, we're called to Jesus and, and to do what? To spot worldly relationships to holding rule and exercising authority. Right? He says that our relationships shouldn't be like that. shouldn't be the standard sort of status quo, the way people relate to authority or power. They're not supposed to be like that. So we're, be, we're able to be taught faithful leadership, and we're able to be taught how to spot it. Unfaithful leadership, unfaithful exercise of authority. How does this happen? Jesus talks in 43 through 45 about service. He's saying the discipleship lifestyle among my followers, if you follow me, if you follow me, the discipleship lifestyle is one of service. You should be living in such a way that you hold rule to serve your fellow brothers and sisters. You should be living in such a way that you exercise authority for your fellow brothers and sisters to serve them. Now, one of the things that he talks about there is whoever would be great. There is a desire to excel. There is a desire to do well. There is a desire to lead, right? There is a desire to be first, whoever would be first among you. There is a desire to do that in the community. But James and John had originally come and said, ah, if I could finally just have some power, I could, it, would, it would make sense. If I could finally be in a place of leadership. Some of you have worked with bosses like this. Some of you have had to interact with people who have their, hold their position over you and hold it over you. You know, you know that they're the boss, and the way that they lead is through the, the actual title of what they do. Jesus is saying, that's not the way that we're supposed to do it. It's, it's actually worse for, it's the worst for pastors. He who would be first has to be slave to all, he says. And yet, Martin Luther points out that there's a priesthood of all believers. So every one of you, in some sense, has a pastoral component to who you are and the way that you have to live your life. And in that sense, we've got to be able to serve one another. So desire to excel here 
is upside down side. Your desire to excel is not serving yourself. It's not serving your own needs. It's not serving your own agenda. It's not making sure that life will go well with you. Your desire to serve, excellence in service, your desire to excel in excellence in the community is to be excelling in your indebtedness to the flourishing and good of one another. First, not your own flourishing and good first. You see that? The flourishing and good of one another. The reason the twelve were to serve is indebted to one another's flourishing and good first is that the greatest leader ever, even the Son of Man, he says, even the Son of Man, this is the Lord's Messiah, this is the one that the prophets wrote about, coming on clouds, bringing righteousness and reign of justice and peace and mercy. This is the one, this is the representative man. If there's a greater leader, there's no greater leader than this one. This is the one we're talking about. Even the Son of Man came to do what? Not to be served, but to serve. So the reason the twelve were to serve as indebted to one another's flourishing and good is because the Son of Man, the greatest leader ever, came not to be served, but to serve. He didn't come for the benefit of preserving his life, but to give it up as a ransom for many so that many could have life. When you think of leadership, now, I th- you know, I read the leadership texts. The first thing out of the leadership text is not that. First thing out of the leadership text is the meaning of leadership is that you have followers. People, you know, you're casting vision and you say, this is where we should go and people will actually follow you. There's, there's no better definition in leadership than that. I, granted, I think there's skill in that and maybe even some giftedness in that. But the reality is here is you say you can have skill, but gutted without this that skill won't amount to anything. You can live out of your giftedness, and many of you are very gifted, but if you don't live out the character of this, if you don't lead out of the character of this, where you're serving others for their well-being and their flourishing first, your giftedness won't amount to anything. Okay? So he's slapping down James and John for wanting to use a position of power and exercise authority over others. He said that's not the way that in the gospel you're to relate to power and authority. Kingdom leadership serves others so that they flourish for their ultimate good. And I say ultimate good because he ransomed them from sin and death. That's ultimate terms. That's why the Son of Man came. And so when we think about how far should we get involved in our leadership of serving others for their ultimate good. Now, that's the nature of servant leadership. Next, we're going to look at the follow-through of servant leadership, James 2, 14 through 17. James had had, that, that talk had changed James. It had changed him. And he, he had an understanding of what that meant, and he spells it out in his passage. What good is it? He begins with a rhetorical question. What good is it? Meaning no good at all. So what good is it? And he's talking to Christians who know this, who need to know this. And we need to know this. What good is it if someone, who's someone? If anyone in the Christian community, if you, say you have faith, what does that mean? It means professing Jesus as Lord. It means knowing that the Son of God came to earth, incarnate as a man, represented you, lived the life that you should have lived, died the death that you should have died, rose again victorious over the power of sin and death, and comes to live in you, right? All of that is very powerful parts of the gospel, right? 
very powerful aspect of what we believe, the centrality of what we believe is Jesus and what he's done. James here says, if someone in the Christian community says he has faith, professes belief in Jesus, and it was dangerous to profess belief in the early days. Dangerous. You know, later in, in some of the persecutions, some of the Christians died unwilling not to profess. I mean, they, they had to profess Jesus, and so they died for it when they were told not to. And some of them had their, their skulls drilled open and molten lead poured in, and some of them were just torn and drawn and quartered, and some of them were put in pitch and, and tar and, and lit as torches in the, in the emperor's garden. There was awful cost in the early days of professing faith. James has the audacity after that encounter with Jesus to say, what good is that faith, your profession of Jesus, even dangerous thing to profess in those early days, what good is it if you do not have works? More than just words, actions. The prophets say to love justice and do mercy and walk humbly with your God. Can that faith, profession in Jesus, at personal risk at yourself, be enough to save? James is really audacious here. Because his, his answer is, no. No. And he spells it out. He spells it out. He says in James 15 through 17, if, if, if is a condition, right? If, when you find a brother and sister, anyone in your community, and we know from Hebrews that we studied over a year ago now that Philadelphia means love of brother. Philoxene is the next word in the text in Hebrews, and it talks about love of other. So when we talk about love of brother and sister, we're not just talking about us here, although it's not less than that. It's love of other as well. It's philoxenia too. If your brother and sister is, is the current state of things for them, poorly clothed, not clothed with the things they need for warmth, we see that from the word warm later that he talks about fuel and warm, right? Not, poorly, not clothed with the things they need for warmth and lack in daily food. Not enough to pay for the meals. Not enough to pay for meals. I was like that in college once. I was, uh, I was not making any money. I was struggling just to pay my rent. I was uh, paying for college on my own and working full-time to do it, and all of the money was going away. And I, I ate on nuts and um, ramen noodle soup packets. And I, I was dying. <laughs> I mean, literally dying. I went down. I'm about 220 now, which is, I can definitely stand to lose some. But I was 156 then. My frame just doesn't carry that little weight very well. That's how, that's how much I was, I was literally like, I was dying. Until <laughs> I had a friend who came and showed me the value of going to the store and identifying a piece of garlic and a tomato and some, some dried noodles. And, and I began to live off of that. And he taught me how to cook, which was, I was very thankful for. Nonetheless... Lacking in daily food, not enough. Now here's the rub. And one of you, and one of you, in other words, what does it take for him to say that? It's a known condition in the community. It's a known condition in the community. We've talked about this before. Proportionally to how many people are here, 
less of us are willing to stand up and actually take action. It's actually a psychological thing that happens in communities. Did you know that? We've talked about it, the Kitty Genovese murders and things like that. If you, I don't want to use it again because I keep using it. But the point is, is that if there's more than two people present in a community, look around you, there's more than two people present here, it diffuses responsibility to take action psychologically. James says, no, don't live like that. Don't do that. He's saying that if, if one of you, if one of you, it's a known condition of you, right? So if one of you notices this, there's somebody who is, has real need, has real need, is hungry, is having trouble staying warm. I can tell you a story about that too. I won't. Um, has trouble staying warm, and then you go to them and you profess good intent. You actually say to that person, this is the way that you interact with them. You profess good intent. You say, go in peace. What's that? The peace of Christ. God has given us peace from himself, interceding in our midst. Good gospel doctrine, right? Get ready for it because James says that good gospel doctrine without giving things needed for the body, warmth, and nourishing food, what good is it? He asks again. How daring is that? That James would call us out and say, if you have the right doctrine, but you lack mercy in your life and service in your community and the identification of others, you have to know one another to know what the needs are. What are the needs of those in your community? Do you know one another well enough to know them? James says it's possible to profess the gospel, even at expense to yourself, And if you don't do this, it's no good at all. And he goes further. He says that it's not faith. He says it's dead. Profession of Jesus and all of the grandeur of all that he's accomplished without mercy expressed in your life is dead. Without being attuned to one another's needs in such a way that you recognize them, you can see them, you know them, you're going after them in practical ways, you're meeting them, you're, you're there hand in hand, you're taking the burden, you're bearing one another's burdens, another command in scripture. Unless you're doing that, you've got to be careful because you may be professing something that's not actually true inside of you. You know, there was a, a pastor friend of mine told a story of another pastor was a friend of his and that pastor became converted some wait you know sometime much later after he had been ordained and been preaching and so he had actually come to a saving relationship a knowledge of God through faith in Jesus Christ one time when he was preaching when did that happen or what you know what happened after that he went to his pastor friends my friend included and said How come I've never seen grace before that pours itself out in this way? How come I've never seen grace? And he said, go back and look at Luther's commentary to the Galatians. Go back and look. And so the, the guy went back and he looked, and he had underlined and highlighted and written notes next to every single passage that Luther talks about grace. He hadn't seen it. He had said it. He had professed it, but he hadn't known it. It hadn't changed him. So James is talking about something like here.
So the nature and the follow-through of servant leadership also have the balance of servant leadership. And John brings that out for us, okay? John brings out the balance. He's coming along the same tracks that James is as far as what does the gospel lived out look like. He's coming along the same tracks. But he has a, he has a slightly different way of bringing it out. And you'll see the same things, but he talks about the balance, the immense balance. He talks about sound doctrine. He says, by this, by what? Jesus' sacrifice. By this we know love. Jesus' followers have experienced God's love through his sacrifice for them. By this we know it. There's intensity of doctrine. There's clarity of doctrine. There's riches in the study of God and how he relates to us in theology proper that is so beautiful. And there's much of that that we have yet to go after, even taste. It's like we, I've I've said it before, it's like we nibble on crackers. And there's an entire feast in the next room and wine abounding and things to delight your palate and, and the enjoyment of one another in fellowship and friendship over a wonderful meal. That's what God has in store for his people, giving, their pre- giving, him their, giving them him, his presence. So we know love. Jesus' followers have experienced love. And that he laid down his life for us. He voluntarily gave his life to save his followers. And since that's true, John says, it follows. Since that's true, it follows that we ought to lay down our lives Give the resources of our lives as though they were not our own, but for the benefit of others. You see the thread? John was slapped down by Jesus too, and it made a difference in his preaching and in his life and the way that he instructed his community. Give the resources in our lives as though they were not our own, but for the benefit of others. For the brothers, fellow believers, people in the body of Christ who profess Christ. So there's sound doctrine there. He holds that piece together. He says, this is important. Conservative churches often go towards the sound doctrine piece. And it's often, sadly, at the expense of the heart transformation piece and it lived out in practical examples piece. So we're not elevating just that piece of the sound doctrine. It's important. John points to it. We know this, he says. This is important. This is foundational. This is bedrock for our faith. But he talks about sound motive and then sound action. But there's a contrast. Again, if this happens, if anyone, not just someone, will get to it. I've heard that. I've heard that among us. Hey, you'd be really good at this. Why don't you, why don't you try it out? Try out this part of leadership. Oh, somebody will get to that. I mean, there's so many people here. Somebody will get to that. I've heard that reasoning here in our midst. We can't do that. If anyone, just not someone, will get to it, but all of the believer's responsibility. You know when Cain slew Abel in the beginning? God talks to him. He says, he says, where's your brother? And Cain responds, am I my brother's keeper? The implicit answer there is yes, you are. Yes, you are. Now, we don't see it spelled out as fully until we get to this, until we get to Jesus. So if someone, anyone in our community, any one of you, if you have the world's goods, John says, the things we need to survive, food, shelter, clothing, and you see someone in your community in need. In other words, you witness a distance between what you have 
and what they do not have. Yet you close your heart against them. What does it mean to close your heart against them? It means that you do not identify with their need as your own need. You do not identify with the people's needs around you and in your community as your own. Ownership's important. Ownership's important. It's like a, um, uh, a friend who rode around without a seatbelt on. So you got to ride with your seatbelt on. Yeah, I know. I know. Got to ride with my seatbelt on. Not riding with the seatbelt on, driving around. You got to ride with your seatbelt on. I know. Got to, okay. So what happens? One day the friend goes through the windshield, survives, has a terrible accident, but survives. It's okay. It's all right. Next time you see the friend, click, you know, putting the seatbelt on. Well, what's changed? You said you knew about it. Yeah, but now I really know, right? Now I really know. It's important not just to identify with one another's needs in words, but to own them. There's a difference when we own one another's needs. It means proximity. It means intimacy. It means vulnerability. It means that we come in and we know we're, we're alongside of you enough to carry, to help, to enter in. John says, if you see needs and you close your heart against them, and he has the audacity too, he does it himself. He says, how does God's love abide in you? How does God's love, his fellowship of his spirit, when that's the kind of love he shows, how does that abide in you if you're not showing the same love? How does that happen? Right knowledge without right heart and action is not right knowledge to begin with. Be careful in your cleverness in understanding the gospel if you're not aligned with people in service and meeting their needs. And the gospel and showing love, it's so interesting. He says, little children, he calls the people that he's writing to, little children. Little children whine a lot. They get snotty, and they drool on you. And in the case of my daughter this week, you projectile vomit from the top of your bunk bed all over the room. Yeah. Little children, right? And one of the rules of parenting, you've got you've to run through, when they're whining, you've got to run through the checklist, right? For those of you parents, you know this. For those of you who maybe someday, uh, you put this, put this down so you can remember. It's important because you can forget it, let me tell you. One of the things that you have to remember is that, okay, the child's whining. Is it sick? Is it sick? Like my daughter was from the top of the bunk. Is it uh, hungry? Is the child hungry? Is it sleepy? Does it need changed? You go through this checklist in your mind, and sometimes it's just childishness. Sometimes it's one of those, and you take care of it. But sometimes it's disobedience. You have to evaluate as a parent. John calls Christians who are living their lives as adults in the Christian church little children. And he's got to evaluate on this score, are they hungry? Are they sick? Are they tired? Do they need changed? Right? He's doing the same thing as a parent does. Little children, let us not. Let us not. Don't do it this way. Love in word 
or talk. And what he's saying there is that we have the immensity of the gospel. John's gospel of all of them is about God with us. Of all of them, it's a, it's a presentation of the deity and the majesty of God coming to dwell with us. And yet he says, love and word or talk, it's not enough. It's not enough in, our, in themselves, in words themselves to show love. But you've got to do it indeed. You've got to identify and meet needs as though they're your own. In truth, words and talk about the gospel and deeds. Both have to go here. I said before that conservative churches have often excelled in the doctrine part. And liberal churches have often excelled in the deed part. But you can't separate them from one another. In the gospel, they go together. It's got to be word, proclamation of the king, sacrifice for you. And it's got to be deed. We've got to enter in and love one another. So we've talked about the nature of servant leadership. The idea is that leadership, true leadership, is service. Service in the way that God served us. At expense to yourself and for the flourishing and good of the other person. We also talked about the follow-through of servant leadership. It does no good to observe a need, see it actually going on in front of you, and do nothing about it, and yet have goodwill. Say, yeah, you know, I've, a lot of Christians live like this. Yes, North Philly is, has a lot of poverty. Collingswood is going to be near Camden. A lot of violence, a lot of need. It's one thing to say, yes, I wish those areas well. A lot of Christians live like that. It's another thing to see the need and go right into it and begin to meet it. And the third thing is the balance of servant leadership. It's neither doctrine or deeds, but it's both. It's both held together. We've got to have both. Jesus has called us to serve others in our leadership as he served us in his. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your character and that you came not to be served but to serve and to give your life as a ransom of many. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful. And we ask that our, uh, our thoughts would um, drop down into the midst of our hearts and explode into reality. And that from there they would uh, pour out into our lives with one another that we might be able to identify where each other has need, where our neighbors have need, and that we might take the sim- simple task of entering into that need as we see it arise. Be with us, Lord. Be with us as we do that. Give us courage. Give us strength. Give us follow-through. Give us your fellowship. We ask in Jesus' name.